Well, hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Cynthia. And I'm your host, Paula. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Paula, I have a really sad missing person story for you today. Oh, no. Yes, it's about a little girl who went missing one day, and we still don't have any answers. I hate those stories. It's really every parent's worst nightmare. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Sherry Lynn Marler. On the morning of June 6, 1984, Sherry Lynn Marler, a Greenville, Alabama 12-year-old, woke up after spending the night on her living room sofa. Her stepfather's aunt was visiting Sherry's family farm for the week, so Sherry kindly offered her own bed to the guest. Sherry's mom, Betty, had to be at the Waffle House by 7 a.m. to start her shift as a waitress, so she left the house early that morning, making sure to be extra quiet so she wouldn't wake her daughter. Betty said that as she left the house, Sherry stirred and for just a second she thought she had woken her, but Sherry just rolled over and continued sleeping. At around 9.30 that morning, Raymond decided to head into town, and when Sherry saw his red pickup truck backing out of the driveway, she came running out of the house barefoot, holding her shoes in her hands, asking if she could go with him into town. Betty said that Sherry would want to go everywhere with Raymond, as long as he would let her. Raymond's first stop was the First National Bank, as he had some papers that he needed to sign. As he got out of his truck to go inside, Sherry told him that she was thirsty, so he gave her a dollar, telling her to go get a drink at the gas station across the street and to meet him back at the truck in 15 minutes. Sherry was seen by local townspeople walking across the parking lot on her way to the gas station. Now about 15 minutes later, Raymond was finished with his business at the bank, but when he went out to get into his truck, he was surprised to find that Sherry was not there waiting for him. Now, at first he was pretty annoyed, but as he continued to wait for her and 15, 20, and finally 25 minutes went by and she never showed up, he started to panic. So first Raymond called his wife, Betty, at the Waffle House to see if maybe Sherry had stopped by to say hello or grab a bite to eat. But Betty said that the last time she had seen her daughter was that morning when she left the house and Sherry was still asleep on the sofa. So at this point, Raymond starts checking all of the places he could think of. The gas station, any place where she could have been hanging out, but there was no sign of her anywhere. He checked the local feed store and the tractor shop. Sherry's nickname was Little Farmer, as she loved everything about farming, and she loved to be outside, so he thought maybe she could have possibly popped into one of these favorite stores, but there was still no sign of Sherry. And even worse, other than those witnesses who first saw her crossing the parking lot almost an hour ago, no one had seen her. Uh Uh-oh. Side note, I love that her nickname was Little Farmer. That's adorable. So cute, right? Yes. I can just picture her like outside in the farm and with the chickens and... Me too. Oh, adorable. I can relate because that would be like my dream life. Yes. So... uh, Big piece of land, (sighs) little goats and chickens running around. I would love it. Me too. So, yeah, I get it. At 11.46 a.m., Raymond had no choice but to report his stepdaughter missing. 
almost immediately, a huge search began. Volunteers lined up, and the city and surrounding areas were searched on foot, and an aerial search was also performed, but there was still no sign of Sherry. So over the next days and weeks, missing persons posters were hung across the city and the neighboring towns, all in an effort to get information from anyone who may have seen her. But to this day, her case is unsolved, and there is very, very little information available. Now here are a few of the theories. The first is that perhaps Sherry just ran away. But Betty says that Sherry was a happy and content child with no significant issues. She was an obedient child, and she was really excited to go watch her favorite TV show and visit her grandmother later on the very day that she disappeared. Other than the clothing that she was wearing, she did not take anything with her into town. And if Sherry had ran away, she has made no attempt to contact her family in the 37 years since she has been gone. Wow. So could she have been abducted? Now, to me, this is much more plausible. Betty pointed out that in 1984, vending machines did not give change. Now, perhaps Sherry approached someone at the gas station to ask for change, and maybe that person took advantage of her and kidnapped her. I mean, really, anyone with any ill intentions could have just seen her and grabbed her. At the time of her disappearance, Sherry was a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. When she went missing in 1984, she was 5 foot 4 inches and weighed between 100 and 120 pounds. She had a 2 inch scar on her abdomen and a 1 inch scar on her back near her shoulder. She was last seen wearing a long sleeved red plaid flannel shirt, light faded jeans, gray tennis shoes with Velcro fastenings, and a watch with a black band. She had a mixture of baby and permanent teeth at the time of her disappearance, and she had fillings in two teeth. Now, since she vanished, there have been three unconfirmed sightings of Sherry by three different people. And all of these sightings placed Sherry with a man who looked to be around 50 years old and about 5 feet 8 inches tall. He was described as having a husky build and a weathered complexion with crow's feet around his eyes. One of these witnesses said that they heard the girl call the man BJ. In all three of these sightings, the witnesses reported the girl that they believed to be Sherry as appearing to be very upset, disheveled, and dazed. One of these sightings was in Georgia and another was in New Orleans. And I do find it really interesting that the descriptions match in all three of these instances, and they are all in different states. Right. Like, to me, that makes it seem more like it wasn't just a a look-alike couple that, you know, several people saw. It was, you know, spread out. Yeah, like, obviously, he's taking her on the road. Right. And just the fact that three different people in three different locations all saw the same thing, and they all believed it to be her. Right. It makes it more likely. Right. And if it wasn't her, then I would say she must have looked very, very similar. Now, the third theory is that Sherry was, of course, murdered. Now, obviously, Raymond was the first person to be questioned by police. He was very cooperative with the authorities, and he answered their questions 
Until, that is, they asked him to take a polygraph test. And this, he refused. Now, some people automatically think that refusing a polygraph is suspicious. You know, if you have nothing to hide, then what are you trying to hide? But I think most true crime fans understand completely. And I actually heard it put really beautifully on the True Crime Garage podcast. They said that there are only three results to a polygraph. Either you were truthful, you were not truthful, or the results are inconclusive. And two out of the three results look bad for you. And I always say never take one because no matter what you're saying, it's going to, the results are just going to make you look guilty. Right. And I loved how they, you know, I thought they put that so perfectly. Like only two of the three outcomes doesn't make you look bad. That's like a really brilliant way of looking at it. I never thought of that. So like the odds are just automatically against you. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Now we do know that polygraphs are not admissible in court. They're just a tool used to hopefully help find the truth. They can be cheated. Nerves and stress can affect the results. So I think in this situation, I probably would take the polygraph. I think I would, but I totally understand why somebody wouldn't. Yeah. Now regarding Raymond, the police have said that he has never been a suspect in this case. Sherry's mother, Betty, is absolutely positive that her husband did not harm Sherry. In fact, Betty said that Raymond never got over the fact that he had been with her right before she went missing. She said that as he lay dying in a hospital bed in 2003, he said, quote, Betty, I wish I could go get Sherry and bring her home to you, but I can't because I don't know where she is, end quote. And my gut tells me that Raymond had absolutely nothing to do with Sherry's disappearance. Okay. So if not Raymond, could it have been somebody else that she knew? In 2018, the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office said that Sherry had stayed with her stepsister and her stepsister's husband in the St. Stephen area back in the summer of 1983. And remember how there were three alleged sightings of Sherry after she went missing? Yeah. One was in Georgia. One was in New Orleans. Well, the third unconfirmed sighting of Sherry was in this area, very near where her stepsister and stepsister's husband lived. Interesting. It is. So could someone she trusted be holding her against her will? Or could she possibly even be seeking refuge there? I don't know. Now, personally, I would be interested in knowing if anyone around the stepsister and her husband matched the description of the 50-year-old man Sherry was supposedly seen with. Yeah, so we don't know anything about those people. Nope. Not that that I could find anything Uh. else. Now, in my research for this case, I stumbled upon a Facebook page called Sherry Lynn Marler Still Missing. This page is ran by a woman named Ryan Welch Anderson, and I reached out to her personally, and she did respond. This is Ryan's hometown, and about 10 years ago, she started researching this case as she wanted to get, you know, more answers to this disappearance that was so physically close to her. But over the course of the next decade, Ryan found herself on a mission to get answers. She found herself on a mission to find out exactly 
what happened to Sherry. She has a group of volunteers that work with her, and they have done everything from hiring cadaver dog teams to digging up possible evidence. And when I say digging, I mean physically taking a shovel to dirt, digging, looking for evidence. Wow. Yes. Like, she. this is her passion. Yeah. That's not just research, but that's walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Yes. She is on a mission. Now, Ryan says that over the last decade, she has spent approximately $15,000 of her own money in an effort to try to find the truth about what happened to Sherry, and she believes that she has finally found it. Oh. So I reached out to Ryan, asking if there was anything she could share with us, or anything she would like for me to reveal on this podcast. And she said that she wishes that she could share the video footage of the dogs hitting on the presence of human DNA. But since this is an open case, there are rules and laws preventing her from being able to share that information. That's so frustrating. It is. But in 2019, the Facebook page posted something very interesting. And part of that post reads as follows. Sherry Marler was murdered and dismembered by someone she knew very well, not her stepfather, and thrown into a hog pen in Butler County. We believe the person who murdered her is deceased. We strongly suspect there were one or two other people there at the time of her death and that they are also deceased. We strongly suspect she was pregnant at the time. We believe she was a victim of a multiple family-based incest pedophilia ring that involved people from both Butler and Crenshaw counties. Holy cow. Wait, how old was she? 12. Oh my God. That's insane. It gets even more insane. So from what I was able to gather from the Facebook page and from Ryan herself, Ryan says that over the years, she had received numerous tips and hints, many anonymous, that there was an abandoned pig farm that was actually functional back in 1984 when Sherry went missing, but has since been abandoned and reclaimed by nature. Tips led Sherry to believe that there was more taking place on this property than just the farming of pigs. So she reached out to the owner of the land. And in one source, I read that it was actually the wife of the man who Ryan believes killed Sherry and that they had this property searched and literally unearthed. This is where she had two separate cadaver dog teams brought in. And she says that they have video footage of them both confirming hits on human remains in the area. They also found a piece of fabric that appears to be like a burlap looking material with some red on it. Now, in my opinion, this material does not match the description of what Sherry was wearing when she was missing. And the red does not look like blood to me. Okay. But that doesn't mean that Sherry couldn't have either worn it later or somehow been in contact with this fabric if she was being kept there for some time. Now, Ryan said the material was sent in for DNA testing And according to the Greenville Police Department, there was no DNA evidence found on the material. Ryan also states that a surviving family member of the person that she thinks murdered Sherry 
allowed her to look through a box of old photos. And again, in some sources, I read this was the wife of this person who could have murdered her. Right. But I didn't read anything like that directly from Ryan. So I do want to make it clear that that was just one source. And I want to be really careful to not report anything incorrectly. But some of these photos that Ryan was allowed to look at were of the pig farm when it was still running. And in one of these photos, Ryan found something shocking. In every murder story, you always hear the words, then there was a startling discovery. (laughs) This is that moment. (laughs) This is that moment. So this particular photo looks to have been taken, you know, sometime in the 80s. So it's definitely not the high resolution quality prints that we see today. Of course. But in this photo, you see what appears to be a lot of debris, like maybe some old wood, like a pile of it or, you know, trash. And then standing beside this pile of rubbish is a pig. And at first, that's all I saw. But then I noticed the bottom left corner of the photograph had been folded. There's this really like prominent crease. And if it was folded under, then by just looking at the picture, all you would see is that pig. But when you unfold the photo and look at it in its entirety, right underneath the pig is what could be and what Ryan believes is a severed human head that had not yet fully decomposed. Oh my God, that's creepy. This photo is going to be on our Facebook. Oh, geez. Now, stranger still, I read in one source that the date and timestamp of this photo had been scratched or marked out, and it appeared to an onlooker that the tampering with the date and timestamp and then the fold in the photo that, you know, hides this questionable object in the corner could have just been the owner's way of trying to conceal the nature of this photo without destroying it. It's a possibility. Well, if you're the type of person who's going to take a photo of the severed head of someone you killed, then you're probably also the type of person who enjoys knowing that you have this photo. Right. And you probably wouldn't want to destroy it. You know, it's your souvenir. Right. So Ryan took a photo of this photo on her phone, and the original was reportedly seized by law enforcement and given to the FBI. However... When Ryan called the FBI, because she called the FBI, because again, this is her her passion project. Right. They said they never received the photo. And I did see several posts on this Facebook page where Ryan is giving updates saying that this photograph continues to remain lost. I'm calling shenanigans. It's convenient. Very. I mean, finding the truth is, I think, probably ultimately everybody's goal. But if for some reason you think that... She's a quack or, you know what I mean? Like, if you don't care, then it would be convenient to have lost this. Right. Or if you're covering up for someone that you know. Yeah, absolutely. So according to this Facebook page and Orion, they believe that Sherry was the victim of this incestuous pedophile sex ring. And Sherry ended up getting pregnant from the abuse. And as a result, her captors killed her and then fed her to the pigs. Now, Ryan and her team have said they are pretty much certain that this is what has happened to Sherry. And though they may never be able to prove it, it does bring them peace to feel that they finally have some answers. On June 6th, 
2010, on the 26th anniversary of Sherry's disappearance, Betty opened Enterprise Restaurant. The sign on the street said the restaurant was opened in honor and memory of Sherry Lynn Marler. Betty said, we want to honor her memory, but we also want to heighten people's awareness of the reality of children missing every day in this country. Betty joined Team HOPE, which stands for Help Offering Parents Empowerment, a program created by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to help train the family members of missing sexually exploited children so that they can help others in the same situation. Betty said at Team HOPE, we are members of a club that no one wants to belong to. I volunteer in the hope that no one else will ever have to go through what our family has been through. If you have any information about Sherry's disappearance, please contact the Greenville Police Department at 334-382-7461 or the Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-843-5678. I really hate the ones that are unsolved. My heart breaks for parents in these cases. Because though you would never want to find out that your child had met their demise, I think not knowing and spending your entire life wondering Mm -hmm. would be worse. I agree. And just wondering, I think it's hell on earth. I think it would absolutely be hell on earth to be the loved one of anyone who who went missing. Hopefully somebody will remember something. Hopefully we can um, get her some answers, Betty, you know, to find out what's happened to I believe that Raymond probably already has them because he's now, you know, moved on. He's in the afterlife. Right. And um, I think at that point, if you're, you know, if you believe in uh, heaven and, and things like that, which I do, I think at that point our questions are probably answered. So he's probably he's probably got the answers now. But hopefully Betty can find them while she's still here. I hope so. That's the case of Sherry Lynn Marler. Wow. That is a sad one. Very. So we have a couple minutes, Paula. Do you want to give us a little something for our time to kill segment? Actually, I do. Ooh. I'm excited. So I watched this show on Netflix. It's called The Keepers. It came out in 2017. It's seven episodes a documentary about a cover-up in the Archbishop Kehoe High School in Baltimore, Maryland. So it starts off with the unsolved murder of a nun named Catherine Sesnick back in 1969. And at first I wasn't really sure if I was really into it. It kind of took me a, an episode, but like by the end of it, I'm like, let's watch another. Let's watch another. <laughs> it sucked it me sucked in. It sucked you in, huh? Definitely. <laughs> it's basically about this priest named Joseph Maskell. He had sexually abused students, and you will hear some of the former student testimonies, and they are disturbing. Mm. Very. So my heart repeatedly broke for the poor innocent children, and they were abused by someone that, you know, they thought they could trust, someone that they could turn to and respect, and I think that's kind of why he started to do it, is because these poor innocent children, he was messing with their unformed minds. 
Oh, it's horrible. That's awful. And plus, it's, back in those days, you it's not something you talked about. Right. You know? Right. For Yeah. Which is so toxic. Yes. So toxic. And then to be a priest, you're not only just a trusted a, an adult, but you're supposed to be someone like who is doesn't conform to the world right you're like this holy figure right and to do that that really you know i'm a pastor's daughter and that really grinds my gears when people who claim to be you know on the side of good right do things like this absolutely that's what makes it even more horrible absolutely i mean we're all human everybody makes mistakes but you don't make these kind of mistakes right Ugh. so a few months after its release on netflix Ryan White, which is the filmmaker, he said that the keepers got some positive effects. So some people were watching the story and realizing that they weren't the only ones that this had happened to. So it brought a lot of people out of the woodworks that even came forward that weren't in the show. Ooh, that I literally just got chills. (laughs) Another positive was that there were more being done on the investigation. Father Maskell's body was exhumed. And there was further DNA testing done. There was not a match, but he was still considered a suspect. You know, just because he physically didn't kill someone doesn't mean he couldn't have someone kill for him. Right. I watched that show, The Keepers, too. It's been several years, but I remember it being quite disturbing. Mm -hmm. I need to rewatch it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We strive to bring you a new episode every Friday. Yes, thank you so much for listening. I've been trying to focus on like unsolved cases as of late because I thought let's okay. bring them more attention. That's a good idea. So for the next couple of weeks, I think we'll be bringing you some unsolved. Maybe we can help find some answers. That's a great idea. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. All right. Y'all have a good one. Bye. Bye. <laughs>